Hello, and welcome to the Bookshelf Conversation, the podcast segment of Ron Kaplan's Baseball Bookshelf, your source for news, reviews, previews, and interviews with authors, artists, musicians, filmmakers, anyone who has anything to do with baseball and pop culture. Because that's our slogan, if it fits on a bookshelf, it fits here. As I've said in the past, I don't like to blend the current political situation with baseball. This blog is meant as an escape from the day-to-day problems of the world. But with this book, there's no getting away from the connection between the Oval Office and the national pastime. Of course, the subject has been covered on a general level, most notably by the excellent worth of Kurt Smith, whose most recent offering, The Presidents in the Pastime, The History of Baseball in the White House, is a must-read for anyone interested in the topic. But before Nicholas Sarantakis's fan-in-chief, Richard Nixon and American Sports 1969-1974, came along, I don't believe there's been a book that looks at that connection for a single president. I spoke with the author recently about the challenges of crafting his work. Nick Sarantakis, welcome to the Baseball Bookshelf. Thank you. It's good to be here. So this is a kind of an unusual book. Uh, it's, it's a history book, of course. It's a baseball book. It's a sports book. But it focuses on an unusual side of uh, Nixon. We're hearing a lot about Nixon in these past few months. But what prompted you to write Fan-in-Chief? It's a long story. It starts uh, almost 20 years ago. I um, stumbled on a list of Nixon's greatest baseball players of all time, and he put this together in July of 1972. And I was familiar with this list. I'd read about it when I was in middle school and kind of forgot about it. One day I was cleaning out my closet, and I stumbled upon a book of sports lists, and in there was um, Nixon's list, and I started to realize, hey, wait a minute. Um, this is an interesting topic, and I was in Ph.D. school at the time I was cleaning out my closet, and uh, started looking at this list, and was like, why in the world would the President of the United States create his personal baseball all-star team? And, you know, this is the greatest first baseman of all time, greatest second baseman, and so on. And uh, then I realized, wait a minute, this came out in summer of 1972. That's baseball season, but that's also presidential re-election time. So I realized this... <coughs> was something of a uh, effort on him to do political uh, theater. And um, I was writing my dissertation on an interesting topic that had nothing to do with uh, anything except uh, it ends with the Nixon administration. And I was uh, doing research in the U.S. National Archives, and I had some time to kill, and I said, well, you know, why don't I take a look at the Nixon material? Because at this point in time, uh, the Nixon... White House files were still in College Park, Maryland. They hadn't, the Nixon Library hadn't become part of the National Archives system. Anyway, so they pull up these uh, files and they bring them up, and there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And I um, took notes, and during the process of trying to get that published, uh, someone said, well, you know, he did some other weird things. Like he went to the Texas-Arkansas uh, baseball uh, football game in 1969, and I knew all about that being a good uh, Texas Longhorn uh, alum. So I went back to the National Archives on another research trip and uh, basically decided to take a look at the entire sports and recreation uh, file, and it turned out there was a lot of stuff there, probably about the equivalent of two... Um, uh, two um, um, uh, uh, cabinets, uh, file cabinets worth of stuff. 
And I said, well, you know, there might actually, instead of being an article here, there might be a book. So I started doing that, and that's how I ended up uh, doing this project. Now, you, you mentioned uh, uh, the political nature of this, but you know, some politicians will put on a baseball hat and claim to be, oh, yes, I'm a big fan of such and such a team. But he was really a true fan. He was very knowledgeable in, in all aspects of sports. Yes, he was, uh, and this was nothing manufactured. Uh, he was a real fan of baseball. Uh, he was basically a fan of college football, pro- professional football, and back uh, at that time in the 60s and early 70s, there were two uh, professional teams, or leagues, excuse me, the uh, American Football League and the NFL, uh, and eventually the American Football League and the NFL uh, National Football League merge and become the modern-day NFL that we know today. But uh, he was also a fan of uh, professional baseball, and that went way back. So that went back to basically growing up as a kid and listening to games on the radio. Uh, I believe his first game he went to was a Brooklyn Dodgers uh, game. Either that or Washington Senators. I kind of get a little fuzzy on that. But that was back in the 40s. And uh, he was the kind of guy who just, you know, he loved the stats of it, but he also loved the drama of it. And it was just, it was one of those things that was, you know, a real genuine hobby of a guy who didn't have a whole lot of hobbies. Now, I'm, I'm reading The Presidents in the Past Line by Kurt Smith, and he uh, there's a chapter in there about each president, and the chapter about Nixon, they asked him about his first game, and I, I don't know if it was the Senators, but the Yankees were involved, and he said, oh, I don't remember too much, and yet, despite that claim, he reeled off a bunch of facts that, uh, upon research, Kurt Smith found to be true. The You, you mentioned this was a 1972 list. He also did a list... Uh, during the centennial season, 1969, when the All-Star Game was held in Washington, uh, a predecessor of this list also uh, picking the greatest te- the greatest players of different eras. So it was not not just one giant team. It was like the the uh, 20s to 40s, and then the modern day, and then I think in '72 there were like expansion as as well. Uh, that's, uh, he did a second list in, uh, 1992 on the 20th anniversary. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. And, um, what happened is in 69, he's the president and for a variety of reasons, Major League Baseball decided to have the centennial all-star game in Washington, D.C. A lot of people thought it should have been in Cincinnati since, you know, the Reds were the first baseball team, Mm -hmm. uh, professional baseball team. And... Nixon did something that was kind of interesting that now is kind of commonplace, but at the time was really kind of new, is he contacted Major League Baseball and said, listen, uh, before the game, I want to have a, a, an event at the White House. And they're like, wow, well, what kind of event? And they're like, I want to invite all the all-star players. And in the negotiations, it became all the kind of historic stars. So people like, um, you know, Babe Ruth wasn't there because he was deceased, but it would have been Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and uh, all, the, all these players of different eras. And he, you know, major league officials, the president of the American League, president of the National League, so they're all at the White House for this reception, and it's the all current all stars and you know guys who were players, and then the team owners and all this sort of stuff. And for a lot of guys, it was like I've never thought I'd be invited to the White House. What am I doing here? Uh-huh. And Nixon is just giving <clears throat> giving his spiel. I mean, he's talking about. <clears throat> baseball, growing up as a kid, and then he has a receiving line, and then it starts raining and thundering. <clears throat> Well, <clears throat> there's no uh, all-star game, so just kind of hang out at the White House, and everyone's like, I never thought I'd be at the White House. And then nowadays, 
people going to the White House after they win the big game or they win the World Series is kind of commonplace. Uh, back then, Nixon was the guy who invented the practice. And uh, the rain and thunder basically rains out the All-Star game, and it turns out that the big, the big story for that day on sports pages is the reception at the, at the White House. And it's kind of a little surreal because for a lot of people it was a brand-new experience. And it's like, uh, what am I doing here? And you know, then he comes out with the, <clears throat> the all-star list in 72, which is more or less just a uh, – it started off some reporter at a uh, press conference asked him if he could do that, and it was kind of unplanned, but Nixon's not an idiot. He kind of jumped on it. This becomes a big splash in 72, and I tracked where it uh, is – uh, presented in newspapers and in you know, some newspapers that you would not expect give it huge coverage. Uh, for example, the Boston Globe devotes almost a full page to it. Uh, the Chicago uh, Sun-Times gives almost a full page to it. Other papers ignore it completely. Sports Illustrated was pretty uh, skeptical about it. But fast forward to 1992, Nixon was like, hey, it's the 20th anniversary. And he's not a stupid guy. It's also the 20th anniversary of Watergate, and a way to kind of divert some attention from <laughs> all this is, hey, I'm going to create a new new team, and instead of instead of it being one team, and in fact, the 72 team was actually, he had an all-star team for each league before the war and after the war. So actually, he had four teams, and he had reserve players. So he ended up having about 50 guys on his, quote, all-star team. And um, in 92, he basically created... Um, a pre, pre-war team, uh, a post-war team, and then kind of a contemporary team, so uh, which would have been like the 80s and 90s. So, uh, again, he creates not one team but six teams, and, again, reserve players and all this sort of stuff. So someone said if there's not a, you know, and some of the, some of the choices are a little obvious. You know, it's like, okay, I need a Puerto Rican player, and, you know, I need a Polish-American player, and I need a, you know, um, you know Italian-American and all this sort of stuff. And someone joked at the time, if there isn't a uh, <clears throat> if there isn't a specific minority that isn't represented, they're obviously not that important. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm wondering uh, if this was the the time at one of these lists at the 1969 event. Is that where we came to uh, decide the greatest living player was Joe DiMaggio? Yeah, there's uh, baseball puts together its own list, and that's part of their celebration, and they create. Uh, two teams. One is the greatest living players and and then the the greatest players of all time. And they actually just create a list. And um, that was done, I think, the day before the reception at the White House. And Frank Borman, the astronaut who later becomes president of Eastern Airlines, which no longer exists today, but he's the master of ceremonies and the White House band is there to play all this sort of stuff. And Joe DiMaggio is, is... picked. Uh, there are a couple other titles. I mean, one of the titles that's recorded is the greatest living baseball player of all time. And Joe DiMaggio afterwards always insists on being mm-hmm. introduced that way. Right. And a lot of reporters who, uh, news media types who were not uh, historically minded or knew the origins of that title thought it was a bit of a, DiMaggio's ego run amok. <laughs> and it might have been, but it was also a title that was officially accorded to him by you know Major League Baseball. And he's kind of like, hey, this is my title. So, you know, we don't have Dukes and Barons, but, you know, we we got that. So that, That's hey. our royalty. Yeah, exactly. Talk a little bit about the, the idea that uh, Nixon had been considered for what later became Marvin Miller's role in the baseball labor movement. Um, back in... Um, Back in the day, in the '60s, Nixon was kind of uh, 
trying to figure out what to do. He had run for president, almost won, lost, runs, you know, is kind of wounded, uh, isn't sure what he wants to do with his life, moves back to California, makes the mistake of running for governor of California, is defeated soundly by um, Pat, ba- Pat Brown, who is Jerry Brown's uh, father. So um, both Browns become governor of California. So he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do in his life. He eventually moves back, he moves to New York, becomes a corporate lawyer, keeps his toes in the water, but at the to- uh, in the water of politics, and eventually in 68 becomes, you know, the nominee of the Republican Party, and he's back. But those uh, eight years or so in the 60s are kind of his lost years, if you will, and he thinks about doing a lot of things. In fact, I was doing some research. He actually thought about going on back on active duty in the Navy, hmm. and um, people say, you know, uh, that's probably not a good idea. Um, and for a variety of reasons, he was very unlikely that he would have qualified for a pension just because he hadn't done anything in the 50s because he was busy being vice president. So he thinks about it a lot, doing a lot of things. And um, one of the things that he thinks about uh, doing is being the legal representative for the players' union. And uh, we tend to think of this, you know, players' union as being liberal Democrats and Marvin Miller is this bomb-throwing, you know, left-of-center guy some degree that's true but you know you also have to remember that baseball players are still wealthy guys who you know um want to want to hold on to this hard-earned money and not necessarily you know left the center in all their politics and they said nixon's a real sports guy he's a good lawyer and marvin miller's like yeah i really don't want to do that so they sat down and interviewed and nixon you know had a lot of contacts on the on the team owner side in fact uh I believe the owner of the Reds was the um, chief finance guy for the re-election committee in 72. But anyway, um, Miller just said, this isn't really going to work. Nixon was, uh, when it came to baseball, he was really an owner's guy, even though, you know, he knew that, uh, excuse me, not an owner's guy, he was a player's guy. Uh, And uh, even though he knew owners, he was really kind of on the side when it came to labor issues of the players. So... It wasn't actually a, all that radically bad an idea. The funny thing is Nixon had also been considered for Major League uh, Baseball Commissioner mm-hmm. uh, in the early 60s, and that was also one he was kind of like, well, eh. And it was one of those things. Nixon wasn't completely ready to give up on politics. Right. Uh, you know, being a corporate lawyer was basically a way for him to kind of tread water until you know, political opportunities opened up again for him. Other people who've been there and, you know, done that and lost have gone into, you know, corporate uh, uh, lawyering full time. Uh, Tom Thomas E. Dewey, who was the Republican nominee in '44 and '48, did that, and he had been a role model for Nixon in a lot of ways. So there's a real possibility he might do that. Dan Quayle has pretty much done that in the more recent years. Has pretty much given up on politics and become a full time lawyer guy. So that was a real possibility for Nixon, but he wasn't quite ready to give up on. Uh, elected politics, and he kept his, you know, uh, toes in the water, kept it, uh, reading about policy issues, and lo and behold, things shifted, and he becomes president in 68. So, but that was something he was seriously considering. In doing the research for this book, what was the one thing that surprised you the most? Uh, the, thing, the thing that surprised me the most was probably, um, you know, how much you can kind of really see and get to know the real Nixon. And um, and I know that there's some people to dispute whether or not there is a real Nixon, but I mean, 
you know, everyone has social faces and you act some some ways, but uh, under certain circumstances and other ways under other circumstances. But the thing that really surprised me is that you really, Nixon really kind of opened up. He was, uh, as far as he got, uh, pretty much open and unguarded when he was talking about baseball. And the really fun thing for me was towards the end, I'd been working on this project for many years and I sat on it for a while just to get some distance and during that sitting time period the Nixon tapes became uh, available they're all pretty much all online now and I ended up listening to the tapes a uh, number of hours of them uh, not the easiest source to use because a lot of conversations are on one reel and you have to listen to scratchy static and all this sort of stuff but it was really interesting to just kind of be a fly on the wall and some of the conversations were fantastic it's like wow this is the guy i mean he is the smartest guy in the room and uh, that was really interesting so you really got to see nixon's intellect you got to see him running a meeting or at least listening to him run a meeting he listened to phone conversations which in audio quality when you're listening to the tapes were fantastic it's basically the west wing except it was for real so <laughs> We've been talking with Nick Sarantakis. The book is Fan in Chief, Richard Nixon and American Sports, 1969 to 1974. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us today. My pleasure. You guys have a good time. Be sure to check back at the site, ronkaplansbaseballbookshelf.com, for the latest bookshelf conversation with another fascinating person from the world of baseball, pop culture, and literature. In the meantime, if you have any questions or concerns, please feel free to drop me a line at Ron Kaplan's Baseball Bookshelf at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next time.